1: Thursday night edition of the pod. A reminder, this is going to be the last one where the only place you can get the COVID-19 update is in this feed. We're going to be starting a new one. The plan right now is Sunday night, so please subscribe to that. We will continue to make it available on this feed for a little bit longer after that, but we encourage you to sign up there. It's much easier to spread it around for people who may not be interested in the NBA, and I hope that if you're enjoying those segments, please tell your friends, share it on social media. We really appreciate all of the Nice things uh, that people have said about it uh, as well. And if you missed it, my mom was on the pod yesterday talking about uh, COVID-19 insurance issues. Uh, And after this segment with Danny is over, Ben Taylor and I uh, have our usual breakdown. He's on uh, three days a week. So Danny and I, we're going to talk here about the worst contracts in the NBA. It's been about a year, I think, since we did this. Uh, So how do you want to frame this discussion?
2: A notable takeaway for me was that the worst contracts are less bad now than they have been at certain moments, and there are a couple big reasons why. One is... The summer of 2019 was just a pretty tepid one in terms of truly awful contracts. There's some that might get there to be sure, but that they are they haven't soured this quickly. And also remember, there was there wasn't as you know as much money to go around. The like the the best players ended up like Kawhi, kind of waiting a little bit, ended up changing the market a little bit. So a lot of the worst contracts this year are the same ones last year, but now they have one less year on them, and so that's better, I guess, ostensibly. A few have changed by circumstance and all that, but I would say overall, to me, the you know, the way that we generally define terms here is it's kind of how underwater is the contract. So how much is the player worth? How much is he getting paid? And then you it's over the course of the full life. So if it's a year shorter, then generally that means it's less underwater, even if it looks real bad still.
1: Yeah, you can also look at some of the contracts where at least the player is producing at a level somewhat commensurate with their contract now. But we still think of it as a really bad contract going forward because we know that they will not be producing anywhere close to the level that, and these are like the truly massive ones too, you know, your 30, $40 million a year type of contracts. And those I don't find as bad as the ones where it goes out really far and the guy already isn't producing anything now. There does seem to be a little bit of a premium on now in all of this. And so if that player is still producing it in a way that's going to help teams win, sometimes you can have some value. Even if everyone knows that it's going to get ugly later on. And, you know, that was a big part of, say, the Cavs calculus with Kevin Love, calculation, I should say, with Kevin Love. But, Uh, just a spoiler he he might be on this list but but they thought okay well yeah he's gonna be we're gonna be paying him all the way till age 34 but at least he's an all-star player right now and teams will be really interested in him and uh no he hasn't really played at an all-star level these last couple of years so you want to just go through some candidates uh, and then we'll uh we'll each pick our top five yeah
2: i'll go let's let's we can kind of start with i'll just start with one that isn't in my top five but i thought was one worth discussing and it was a one of the lucrative contracts that was signed in the summer of 2019 19 was Tobias Harris Harris Good player, but four more remaining years. So I'm not counting the 1920 season at all. This is solely looking forward. Tobias Harris, four years, 147.3 million. That is just a ton of money for a guy who profiles as a you know a good complimentary piece, but not the straw that stirs the drink on either end of the floor. In fact, he needs to be pretty far from that on the defensive side. And so he wasn't in my five worst, but I I, I wanted to note that as one that a, a couple of years from now we could see it that way, especially if the cap ends up getting going a little bit. softer than it had than anticipation had been
1: just as a rough dollar figure what do you think of him as being worth over these next five years on a yearly basis
2: so i would say he's probably in the 20 to 25 million dollar range right now and then you you scale that down i think that he's going to you know it, it's not going to be like he is going off a cliff at all but i would say you know each year you probably tone it down a little bit off of where it was bar, knowing what we know right now so then if we're saying a four-year contract let's say you start at the top of that and go to the bottom that's like 80 85 million or so so that's that's if if that's right and I'm a little lower on Tobias Harris than most people are that would be 60 million underwater
1: yeah and Harris and it's worth noting he probably would have had multiple max offers sure this off season, he turns 28 in July so he's younger than many of the players who are on these third mega contracts or third contracts that are mega contracts. uh, I should say Uh, also has a $5 million trade bonus in case you were wondering. Yeah, that one I wouldn't, I, I agree with you. It's not in my top five. He is a valuable player. He's young enough to continue to be that. But you do note the issue, too, that he starts making $32 million this year, and he goes up to $39 million, as you would expect it, his production to start waning. And and I also think that he's—I've always felt him to be more of a get you into the playoffs type of player, like the role that he was playing on last year's Clippers team, for example, as opposed to someone you can really rely on to create offense for a high-level playoff team. And then defensively, he has improved quite a bit throughout his career, but it certainly is not— your number one or number two option defensively on the wing but yeah you just struggle with that kind of money you just struggle to see what it is that he does well and like he's he's not an
2: all-nba player
1: yeah (laughs) And (laughs) and and he doesn't scale incredibly well either i mean he's not even really like a superstar in his role
2: yeah i would say that yeah he's not a clay thompson or something like that
1: okay this one obviously i can't remember whether You probably had it number one. I think I had it number one last year as well. That is the contract of John Wall. Kicked in this year. And it's interesting, by the way, as an aside, you mentioned that the summer of 2019 didn't produce that many bad contracts. It produced... A ton of bad extensions, either extensions that were agreed to around that time or that were agreed to earlier and kicked in in the summer of 2019. John Wall's contract is one of those. And lest we remind you of the ghastly numbers 38 million this year, 8% raises, goes all the way up to a player option of 47.3 million in the 22 23 season. And the big issue with Wall, not only is the fact that he would have been fastly overpaid at this number perhaps even at his best but then that you throw in he's not even playing right now he's been very injury prone also he's a player type that's really reliant on athleticism hasn't been a great shooter not an amazing scorer and his defense had already waned before this coming off a of torn Achilles knee surgeries it's just we talked about this in the point guard rankings that it's hard to see you know him being a, a top half of the league point guard going forward especially when you consider the injury concerns so I mean this is gonna be a strong candidate for number one i think
2: yeah, it will be. And the other strong candidate, which I actually had at number one last year, is Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins now has, after this season, three years and about $95 million left That's on right. His we contract. did
1: have—I think Wiggins was number one. I had it above yeah. John Wall. And, You're right and, about that.
2: And one of the like important dynamics of the season, I think Wiggins was less destructive, even before he went to the Warriors. Yes. And that—you know, the argument with him and Wall last year was that Wiggins, he was making so much money that you had to have him in the rotation and he was hurting the team you know wasn't playing good defense and was sucking up possessions offensively he has moved above that level by and large and i thought that was a really important development and then because think about the way that the 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 valuation the way we're doing it here is if you raise his value as a player then the contract by there there's less dead money on it and so it it looks better it's still bad still real bad it will it will figure into this but
1: yeah what, what are the numbers on that by the way
2: three years 95 million after this year yes and john wall just so we have it in there three years 132 2.9 including that 47.4 million player option.
1: Yeah so Wiggins I think he's moved to a level now where he's because he's not actively killing you you know maybe he's like an adequate starter on the wing i mean well obviously when he gets to play with this full warriors group i think we'll have a a very interesting discussion about how valuable he actually is with them
2: and there's a there's a point that i I heard somebody make before the hiatus that i thought was good about how the warriors would make wiggins more efficient and it's also the point of yeah that he would do that with anybody and if you need that kind of heavy lifting to make a player modestly efficient then that's not necessarily a lot of value you know because they could do that for somebody who makes less money somebody who is who has better building blocks than wiggins does so yeah that was that was a consideration for me as well but he's also young there's a significant chance not a like a certainty or anything like that that he that he works gets at least slightly better from this point so yeah i thought that was another factor whereas there are some other players on this list who for various reasons this could be the high watermark and then that becomes a big problem
1: the contract of blake griffin is a big problem going forward 37 million next year 39 million the year after that you remember he's got the eight percent raises because he signed that deal with full bird rights with the clippers it was the full five-year 30 percent max
2: and 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 remember there are two crazy things about this one you and i both hated this contract when it was signed but it was traded for significant positive value including Tobias Harris who we discussed recently on this at the time and then the second thing is it looked a lot better after that first year when he was so good at for that what he was stayed healthy well, well
1: after distance. after last year you
2: mean. yes after last year after the first full year, the only full year yeah yeah
1: and, it, it still didn't look great but it, and you knew he was a ticking time bomb and you just you never know when that bomb is going to go off and it went off this year
2: yeah so 75.8 million and that, that player options on contracts this bad, the player options actually aren't as destructive as they are in other ones because the assumption that the players are going to make the right decision because they're going to pick them up. You know, so it's it's not as much of a thing. Yeah, play. like there isn't a, a reasonable scenario that I could think of where Blake Griffin, even if he's gangbusters in 2020 slash 21, he's not going to decline that
1: option. Well, OK, if he plays, I mean, this isn't impossible. It's very unlikely, but it's not impossible that he could play as well as he played in eighteen nineteen. Maybe he would opt out and resign for you know two years instead of one or something like that. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. But he'd have to. I
2: think he'd have to get it, like, like thirty million a year. Like I mean, because yeah. at twenty at twenty five, that would be twenty five and twenty five would be fifties. So then he's basically taking a ten million dollar salary for the following year.
1: It's exceedingly unlikely. I probably shouldn't yeah. have wasted yeah. Our time.
2: Yeah. The it. Uh, I want to.
1: Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since twenty. 20- 15. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct to consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then girlfriend, now wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. I'm here on the program. That's 20% off your first order at American Giant.com. Don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us.
2: Again, not in the um not in the group, but again, some bad 2019 contracts that I want to mention. I was a little bit more I can't remember, I'd like to go back on how I felt about Buddy Heel's contract, but considering him going to the bench was a part of what made what made things work in Sacramento. Also, you know, some of the stuff with 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 um Bagley and everything else, four years ninety four million is is challenging, especially for a guy who only defends twos and isn't particularly good at that he is good offensively and he brings some value but one of the things that i really like that i mean i dislike a lot of what vlade and sacramento's front office did in 19 but they did make some of their most lucrative contracts descending and that what that it doesn't really make that much of a difference right now but it will in a year or two and that so having harrison barnes and buddy healed cost less money relative to the overall scale of the contract is will make those contracts more palatable
1: yeah so he starts at 26 million next year when the extension which hasn't even kicked in yet. It begins... And remember, he's uh, a little older than your typical guy who was drafted in the 2016 draft. But it I didn't, ha- I didn't make
2: the reference, Sacramento. Remember, I didn't say it
1: this time. It, it does descend down to 20 million. Barnes, who you also mentioned, started at 24 this year, goes down to 22, 20, and then 18. So that yeah, these do get a little bit better as time goes on. Uh, which uh, it's an interesting structure. We'll, we'll encounter that a, a, in a couple places. But yeah, I mean, Heald has had a disappointing year. Lost the trust of Luke Walton. His defense uh, was a major problem and i mean i don't think it was kind of right around where i think we thought that was going to land and he was one of the best three-point shooters in the league last year and he is again this year but some of the limitations in his game really seem to come to the forefront this year so there is a possibility that he could get back to a level where this wouldn't be that bad but especially for a guy going onto a rookie extension it's rare that before it even kicks in you'll look at it as a really bad contract. Um Kevin Love mentioned him of course uh, we don't need to talk about him much more other than to say 31 million next year, 31 million the year after that, 29 million the year after that and he's not playing an all-star level anymore he's a big injury risk he's already into his 30s it'll be 34 by the time the contract ends
2: but, and and a huge problem for love is that he doesn't fit in well on a really good team anymore because defensively there yes. not there isn't a place for him and then offensively he doesn't elevate it enough to justify those limitations
1: yeah that's a, a great way of putting it and that's why they have been able to trade, to trade him because the type of team that would want him is a contender and he doesn't really contribute
2: yeah like remember there was that time that people thought he might go to that he might be an in, injury to the nuggets like now think about how much of a disaster that would be uh i want to mention um not that he's in the, in the same category actually I'll, I'll do my my worst of the expiring contracts so this is usually an expiring contract is it's only a one-year obligation you're doing all that but in terms of sheer below below water value Nikola batum's 27 million player option is actually pretty impressive because i mean where would you put his value for for next season
1: yeah like minimum contract maybe yeah so
2: if- So that's so you might be like twenty five million underwater in a single season. So to me, he gets he gets on the list, and like there are other guys like yeah, Cristiano Felicio seven and a half million. That's real bad, but it's one year, and then another one of those. These are all my expirings, but Batum is the worst. Corey Joseph, if you count the partial guarantee for the next year, which you kind of can, it depends on how you want to see it, fourteen million or twelve point six. Another another rough Sacramento summer twenty nineteen signing.
1: Yeah, I'm not that concerned with anything that doesn't go past. 2021 at this point. I think they're uh those ones can end up just being salary fodder and trades. They're not they're not like franchise crippling contracts, especially because no one's trying to do anything this summer. And again.
2: there we go. That's that's the big difference.
1: Dwight Powell, this is one uh, John Hollinger and I talked about this uh on our show, talking when we looked at some of the best and worst offseason moves from last year. But Powell had $10 million left on the contract he signed in restricted free agency. Then signed a three-year extension for $11 million per, which seemed a little pricey. But now that he's torn his Achilles and he's relying on athleticism going into his late 20s, you imagine maybe they can get some minutes out of him in the future. But coming off of a torn Achilles and you know he's probably not going to play until the end of next year and he won't be effective next year. So that's a whole year basically lost this year basically lost and then two more years after that at 11 million not that fantastic especially too because it goes two years beyond that summer of 2021 so stretching him becomes a a lot more impalatable than if he had only had one year there
2: yeah that's a great point should also mention frequent dunked on punching bag d'angelo russell russell has three years and 90 million remaining on his contract and the wolves thought it was palatable or at least thought it was more palatable than andrew wiggins because of the aforementioned trade the warriors you know made that an important part of their summer of 2019 but it's to me it's meaningfully underwater as well
1: eric gordon yeah this this is one where it went in with this suite of houston moves that were very present focused he was under contract for this year what had been one of the better contracts in the nba and then he signed uh, essentially a a maximum extension he does have a non-guarantee on the last year which is the 23-24 season but uh, gordon age 31 season had surgery this year has not been productive the three-point shot has abandoned him his drives to the basket which had been so effective haven't looked as good and Maybe this hiatus uh, will be a chance uh, for him to recover and get back into it. But considering that he's been worth well below the fourteen million this year, and he's only getting older, and we've got three more guaranteed years, that's looking pretty rough.
2: These guys aren't in my in my top five, but I wanted to mention Eastern Conference big men who signed in twenty who signed in twenty nineteen. Vooch, three years, seventy two million.
1: Yeah, what did we rank him? And I mean, we we had him around you know between the fifteenth and twentieth best center in the league, and that's that's tough for to be paying the amount of money that they're paying him at any position but particularly once you get below the top guys at center when you consider that fungibility.
2: Right. And then I don't think Horford is nearly as bad but it could turn sour and Horford 3 years and 69 million guaranteed left and 3 years 81 million is the full value if he triggers that full guarantee.
1: Yeah, the guarantee triggering if they win the championship during this period and it does decline slightly but I and mean, this is one where you just have to hope that there is something going on injury wise with him because he certainly wasn't worth anywhere close to this and two more years after this one guarantee and then that almost 13 million guarantee in the 22 23 season and, and yeah that that one could be a contender
2: yeah it, it could be i didn't have it in my in my top five but i wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if i had it in my top five next year depending on how things work out another one kind of more in the Christian on a Felicio range if it's not an expensive enough contract to be in here but Jetty Osman having three three years and 24 million guaranteed three years and 31 four years and 31 million total because that last year is non-guaranteed for a player that I mean where like he's not a starter like is he like a decent backup on a good team and that it's shocking that he has that much owed to him so he's not in my in my top five or anything like that but I wanted to mention how strangely bad that contract is
1: yeah and Larry Nance three more years at 10 million each he uh, at least has stayed healthy
2: yeah he, his is a lot decline. better than than jetties to me
1: yeah it does decline they, they had some odd moments where he was actually playing the three because he's <laughs> could be their best one-on-one perimeter defender at this point point. Uh, and also the, their third
2: best player unfortunately their two best players are also bigger than
1: him <laughs> yeah yeah so i, I mean Nance is, is an effective backup it's more just about the position that he plays it's hard for him to be a starter he has uh, if he continues to refine his three-point shot and it would be more realistic for him to play the four full-time than – perhaps this gets off the list but i mean the the big thing that sticks out to me is just how many of these are extensions
2: yeah and extensions that sometimes miscalibrated the 2020 free agent market you know kobe altman signing osman a year early so also you don't get that year of information but who the hell was gonna pay him and i think i mean with Heald, there was more of a concern because he's a three-point shooter 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 doesn't go out of style all that type of stuff but i mean as things turned out like i don't think atlanta would have gone after him i don't. like charlotte would have gone after him at least to the extent that the, the contract sacramento signed him to and then i mean
1: obviously things like eric gordon as well
2: though they're extenuating circumstances because at least eric gordon's on a good team
1: any others that really stick out to you
2: no that's pre- that's pretty much my, uh, my i've got a few okay i have i have a few in my what i call the signpost section but i think we're going to do that yeah. in a future podcast if like they aren't the worst contracts now but it wouldn't shock me at all if they were in a year or two
1: yeah they keep an eye on we, we can run through those quickly yeah we can um, and, and one of them is uh, you're some of these you just could have them on here anyway if you're just looking at the overall value that you expect them to provide over the contract versus their salary just because they go out for so far and they get so like a Russell Westbrook is on there CJ McCollum, even Damian Lillard might be on there frankly, but those are ones where those guys are producing enough now.
2: Wait, I just want to mention with Lillard. Lillard's final season he has 5 years 227.6 million left. His final season is a 54.3 million dollar player option.
1: Yeah, and these are these designated player veteran extension contracts. Similar to what John Wall did, where uh, you sign it with two years left on your initial contract, and then it's four years after that one. So going out six years, and it's just, there's not a lot of six-year contracts in nba history at that percentage of the salary cap for someone at lillard's age that would have turned out to be good contracts i mean there you really have to be an absolute all-time great and i mean he's a great player and he's worth it now and maybe it was worth it for them to to keep in, ha- him happy but this is one of those ones where the fact that they could do it may, meant that they felt like they had to even though they had two years left they could have offered him the designated player veteran extension after this year if they wanted to now, that would have gone out even further, and, and maybe they would have just done that anyway. So perhaps their thought was, hey, we're going to have to offer him five years after this one. So why don't we just do it so we only have to offer him four years after this contract now? In, in any event, though, it could look ugly. And then McCollum, that's the one that really seemed unnecessary to me with him still having two years left. Yeah, uh, McCollum is...
2: It's four years, one hundred and twenty nine point four million.
1: Yeah, and the last three of those years are new years yeah. from the contract that he signed in this uh, off season of twenty nineteen, and those that's about a hundred million bucks right there, just over those three years.
2: Yeah, and Westbrook makes similar money to McCollum, three years, one hundred and thirty two point six million. It's just over three years instead of four, um, and that final year is a forty seven point one million dollar player option. A couple other in that conversation, we have Draymond Green, four years, a hundred million. Final year is a twenty-seven point six million dollar player option. If if he ages poorly, that could look just truly awful. I don't. Yeah, I, we'll
1: find out. I mean, it, it, we really have to see him in a playoff series before we can yeah. assess that contract. I think.
2: And then Clay got four years, one hundred fifty-seven million, I think, remaining. I think that his game will age well, but again, we don't. We have to see how he looks coming off of this ACL injury. And then one, I really hope this doesn't look bad, but because of the back issue, I wanted to mention Ben Simmons, five years, one hundred seventy million, and. I'm hope, hopeful and optimistic that this will not persist and be a big thing. But, you know, if we're having this conversation in April of 2021 and it's been a lingering story, then we might have to start thinking this way.
1: In Denver, Gary Harris is $20 million a year for the next two years, and he has not played at that level. He is, his shot has abandoned him now two years in a row, so hopefully that's not the new normal for him. And then Jamal Murray... I was I was wondering if you were going to bring him up, and this is a, again one where you they gave him this contract. I thought it was a little bit aggressive, maybe more than a little bit aggressive, based on what he had shown. However. If he you know, he's, he's maybe taking an incremental step for this year, his three-point shooting has fallen off. Maybe that's a fluke, but that one, if he doesn't get better, it's going to look kind of ugly. Um, you could also throw Chris Middleton into that. He's had a wonderful year this year, but he's still got four years left, finishing up with a contract over $40 million per year. Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, another one of those signings that has given, I would say, probably surplus value, but he's still got $17 million a year going forward for uh, another three years after this one. Okay, so give me uh, your top three here.
2: My number three is Kevin Love. Three years, $95 million. And Love versus Griffin was a, was a tough call for me. I mean, I, I think Griffin at full strength is a better player than Love, and it's a year shorter. But I chose Griffin as a worse contract because the possibility that you kind of zero out some of that value and it's yes. just that he's he's just not right, and so love love ends up being third for that reason.
1: So number one is easy. That's John Wall.
2: Yes, Wiggins. I guess is off this
1: list now. He's four, he, was my, he was my he was my fourth. Okay.
2: I mean, ninety five million. Wh- yeah. Even even if he's even if he's okay, ninety five million is still a ton of money over three years for him. And like unlike Tobias Harris, who can be a cog in the machine, and we've already kind of seen that with Wiggins, there's an entire a distinct possibility that he's just not
1: yeah love versus griffin is a tough one other candidates that i would have had in al horford sadly that goes out a long way eric gordon i mean there's the possibility that you could just have these guys who just aren't worth anything i mean that's just so damaging if you're not even getting rotation or like you know decent starter level of play from guys who are making a a ton of money by the way congrats to chris paul for getting off this list completely yeah yeah when you're playing at an all nba level and you only have two years left on your contract you you don't have to be on this list anymore he featured prominently last year, as I recall, when he had that injury hit year. So I'm going to go yeah i probably gotta go blake griffin number two just because it's so much it is only two more years though which is the slight saving grace there and then i'd go with kevin love number three horford is in there for me but just because he is a type of player where he can fit in more places and still provide some value even if he's having some incremental reduction in his skill level it's just that his game is more complimentary and so
2: well he's also making i mean so if we're comparing horford if we're comparing horford to, to love like horford's max his full value is 81 million over three years versus love's 95 you could also get out of that last year if you want and i think horford is significantly better than kevin love right now and i think we'll age better
1: yeah love is probably a bigger injury risk overall
2: yeah and so, like and like horford fits you you can there, there are different ways that he could work on a successful team and i think he could really raise the floor of an unsuccessful team in a way that kevin love does not
1: all right so john wall number one blake griffin number two kevin love number three
2: yeah we're in agreement well i'll just repeat the number since you and i both picked it as the worst contract three years 132 $2.9 million, culminating in a $47.4 million player option. And the thing with Wall, why he was my kind of clear number one this time is, even if, and I don't think he's going to be this right away, he's a $20 million a year point guard. Let's say he gets back to that level. It'd be thrilling. You and I both have, uh, it'd be best shot blocking point guard of all time. The, all, a lot of his benefits. Okay, let's say he's a $20 million a year player. That's $60 million. He's owed basically 133. So then that's still 70 basically $73 million in dead money even if he's a $20 million a year player. That's-
0: ah! The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads.
1: The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at forty dollars a month, experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets. From there as well, I felt really good about having them be the outfair of my wedding because... Cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. These are our CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino, I N D O I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O, C H I N O, Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. That's incredible. Let's get some news. It's been a while here. The NBA reduced the salaries of its executives by twenty percent. That's a, the high level executives. I'm not sure exactly how low that goes. Also, in case anyone was thinking that by some miracle we were going to get normal NBA basketball games happening anytime soon, Toronto has banned public events through June 30th. They could always go back on that, of course. Yeah, and they did. They
2: did exempt some sports stuff, but still, it's, it yeah. gives you an idea of where their where their minds are.
1: The NBA Players Association and the league are working on an agreement per Woj for 25% of salaries to be put in escrow. And there have been some reports out there of, oh, well, some of these players have contracts that get them paid up front in part before the season. You can get up to 50% of your salary advanced before the season. It's usually only the biggest stars will get that or, or guys unrestricted free agent offer sheets. Other players receive their payments Bi weekly from november until may that still is a, a relatively small minority of the league and then everyone else gets their payments on a 12-month schedule but that's the actual money what i think got lost in some of that reporting and larry Kuhn and i talked about this quite a bit ago about it's really when is your salary earned your salary is earned with the playing of largely regular season games and there's this force majeure clause that the nba can trigger with the cancellation of games the official cancellation of games has to happen for that to be triggered where for every game missed players lose one ninety second or so of their salary for the season and so that 25% that's being put into escrow that basically is is kind of a when you throw together the playoffs and the rest of the regular season it tracks pretty well with the salary that remained to be earned if you are say LeBron James you got all your salary paid up front then there are provisions where you actually have to return that money it may be through future salary owned, but he would actually have a contractual allegation to or yeah, it's, obligation it's not, it's not to like
2: congr- it's not like gotcha like you don't I don't have to pay in the same way as everybody else
1: yeah because it's all based on the number of games and the amount of revenue so
2: and and you can make an argument yeah. that the time value of money as at least in normal circumstances is makes that beneficial anyway but that's that's the idea not that you can't not that you your money is protected and other people's is not
1: now that force majeure clause also allows the NBA should they want to to reopen the the CBA which reporting that there's no indication they're going to do that. Now, I mean, they, they are going to have to negotiate some stuff, which will be an adjunct likely to the CBA, but... In terms of just hey we are reopening this we are gonna we're making you start from scratch doesn't seem like that's uh, something that they're gonna use for uh, pressure at this time atlanta chris kershner and john hollinger wrote a piece last week together talking about the hawks future and i thought this quote from chris uh, with the athletic the athletic.com slash cap was telling he's saying that the relationship between trey young and lloyd pierce is not strong that it's mainly on the player's side they are far apart was the the quote, but kirschner also said i don't know how much pull a player two years into a career his would have if he said i want a new coach
2: and trey young might have more pull than most second-year players but that is still an indication of where the relationship is which is definitely not encouraging
1: more encouraging well well, and but by the way like we talked about this before like what the hell problem does trey young have with lloyd pierce like i mean i think it's just there have been some reports like chris haynes had back in december of just he doesn't think there's enough accountability but like he built the whole thing around you man like you've developed beyond what anyone ever th- could have thought you would have uh, under this guy now you know Michael Jordan got to shoot every time under uh Stan Albeck and Kevin Lockery and those guys got fired and they probably should have but so but I don't know that Jordan asked for them to be fired a- anyway uh I mean it's just that fact that Young has done well that's not in and of itself an indication that Pierce has done a good job but as I said I think it's the groceries a lot more than the chef in, in Atlanta
2: yeah you and I are in agreement there uh good news on on the player COVID-19 front we've had a, a series of different reporting about various players who were known positives Marcus Smart the Jasmine, Christian Wood and Lakers we never actually found out who their positive tests were but it seems like everybody's everybody's through and the uh, the players we know tested positive that they have all been they have been cleared, it's so like Christian Wood and you need those you need that are uh, you need the consecutive negative tests and that's what Christian Wood got and I believe the Jasmine as well
1: you got Marcus Smart in there too. Yeah, Marcus Smart too James Dolan unfortunately has tested positive for coronavirus this came out late last week Uh, unclear uh, how he's doing right now we we did uh, something that ben and i have noted on the coronavirus pod is that generally the timeline this is uh, on average of course if there are going to be issues is about a week from infection to symptoms maybe a little bit less than that five to seven days then you can have about a week or so until you start really developing complications that could result in hospitalization so uh, hopefully he makes it through that period okay also reports that the knicks are considering elton brand currently gm of the sixers for their gm role
2: it wouldn't be the first time the Knicks hired somebody who overpaid people right before he made his way out the door, because that's what happened with Perry and Sacramento.
1: Jabari Young, now of CNBC, reports that DeMar DeRozan wants out of San Antonio and is, could opt out. Supposedly, he doesn't think that the offense is as good as it should be with him as a hub. He, he's got some points there with you know having to play with Derek White and... DeJounte Murray, who don't shoot it that well, but we've talked many times about the fit issues that DeRozan, as a non shooter and non defender, presents for the rest of the team and how he basically has to play the three. And and there are all sorts of issues there. But DeRozan may not be so interested in opting out. This could be one of those things where it gets leaked as a trial balloon to see whether there are NBA teams that might have some interest in him. And it, it does seem like, based on, I had a conversation with an agent a few weeks ago. And he noted that teams have been a little bit more gun shy on this informal information seeking type of discussions especially unless it's an in-person conversation
2: because of the because of the restrictions that silver put on
1: yes yeah for the anti-tampering stuff from last year i mean i i think that all of that is just such a a waste of time frankly as long as it's not again tampering with players who are under contract during the season i think the informal network of hey might you be interested in my guy when he's a free agent here i, I it, yeah okay it was embarrassing for the league to have a lot of stuff reported before july 1st but other than that pr thing i think it's actually the more information that players and teams can have as long as it's not disrupting a team season that is currently in progress i got no problems with it
2: yeah i'm, I'm largely on, on board with you on that and yeah it's different when you're like trying to leverage a buyout you know like hey well hey we'll get you if you can make your way out or something like that i think that affects the competitive balance much more than trying to figure out what you're going to get in free agency before you make an option decision
1: Kevin Arnovitz first reported that Steve Ballmer was deep in talks to buy the forum. Now those have come to fruition. It's going to be $400 million in cash. I'm guessing that's probably a lot more than the forum would have been worth, but he also basically is buying his way out of any opposition that MSG and James Dolan would have had. Uh, this, This, of course, is bad news for fringe political candidates uh in the inglewood area who might have been supported by james Dolan's money but uh aside from that i think everyone wins from this deal
2: also bad news for those who who are fr- who don't want traffic in inglewood because now it looks like there are going to be two football teams and a basketball team in that neighborhood or is the or the football stadium i think it's in inglewood it might be yeah around.
1: yeah football stadium is pretty close to there too yep. it's a, they're relatively close to one another. i don't know if they're technically within the same complex but it's all pretty close to one another yeah um i mean i I think it's good though clippers fans i think will like having their own arena and balmer you know he's gonna spare no expense on that so the clippers lease with staples center ends 2024 you would imagine if by some miracle this stadium gets built before then they would figure out a way to get out of there but that seems like the target date and uh money talks everyone, everyone was able to negotiate it so uh speaking of money talks this is a relatively sparse report let me see if there's anything more on this at this point ronald tillery who used to cover the grizzlies for the memphis commercial appeal tweeted sources Robert Pira inquired about moving the Grizz last August. I haven't seen, I just looked for it, an article about that. But inquired, I mean, that's very vague. It could have just been, I mean, I think you, as a business owner, just knowing what your options are, if you if you just told someone, hey, let's look into this, let's see what the contract says. It could be that. It could be he talked to people and was really seriously considering doing it. Who knows? I, I I needed a little bit more here to really run with this though, believing that this story has any luck
2: Yeah, I would agree with that.
1: And my understanding is there's protections within the Grizzlies contract that
2: Yeah, I mean that came up a couple of years ago that they just had yeah. this ridiculously strong lease with FedEx Forum.
1: Yeah. And also I think there is some provision for minority owners to buy the team if he is thinking of moving it. But yeah, this is uh it takes us back to those glory days of the buy sell provision and uh and Steve Kaplan. But does doesn't look like this has many legs yet, especially if it's just getting reported right now. One thing I encourage you guys to do, if I may promote a little bit, because uh, our household can always use the money, is my wife is actually teaching online yoga, yoga classes. Zoga, Yeah, yeah, actually, maybe that's what they should call it now, because it's uh, yoga classes via Zoom. I tweeted about it. You can follow her on Twitter, at Yoga With Ashlyn, A-I-S-L-I-N-N, Yoga With Ashlin. And if you or your significant other are into yoga or are looking to get into it, great way to do that. She teaches restorative classes for after work, which are really relaxing and meditative. Or if you are someone who already does yoga and you want to really take your practice to the next level, she has a very analytical approach. That's why we're married after all, to her yoga and so look her up uh, on Twitter or Instagram at Yoga with Ashlyn, A-I-S-L-I-N-N. Anything you want to talk about before we go here?
2: Yeah, I did a Real GM Radio episode with Seth Partnow. Really fun. We we ended up going into kind of the significance of the hiatus. So not only the challenges in terms of evaluating players and draft picks, but also what it could look like moving forward. So it was just, you know, a, a wide range of conversation that I really enjoyed. Uh, so you can listen to that on the Real Gym Radio feed. Or you can check out my tweets. I've a bunch of times.
1: All right, we'll bring in Ben Taylor right now. Wow, it feels like it's been forever since I last talked to Ben. It was just two days ago, but so so much news to absorb on a daily basis. I don't know if we could even get to everything that Ben and I talked about before the show, uh, but what's uh, the biggest thing that's been on your mind over the last couple of days here
0: well there's a lot of discussion uh, of course around sort of the economic ramifications we've talked about this on previous episodes and one of the more interesting things that i wanted us to at least present was this idea or some research was done on older pandemics trying to understand what happens when you take the measures that we're seeing being taken right now when you have social distancing when you lock cities down what happens economically afterwards as you go forward in time in terms of recovery so uh that's probably the biggest thing out of the gate that i at least wanted to address because we keep talking about it in the background and now we've got some firmer data to suggest what happens when these things take place
1: yeah so uh, we've talked before a little bit about how uh, Our belief that this is really a a false choice between, okay, you have the economy open and everything's fine with the economy, but people die, or you close everything up and people don't die and the economy gets hurt, that there's not that strict dichotomy. But uh, what's the new stuff uh, that you wanted to talk about here on this?
0: So there's a paper basically that analyzes what happened in the 1918 Flu pandemic in the United States, and as we have alluded to, I think on a few episodes before, different cities during that epidemic locked down at different times and for different periods of time. I mean, some places were more rural, some places were more urban, and so you'd have things like, you know, in one city they would allow a parade to go on, and then you'd see something happen after the parade in terms of the outbreak. In another city, they would say, "We're we're all going to stay indoors. The things we're doing now, right? We're going to social distance. We're going to close shops." And when that occurs, of course, there is an economic. You've Nate, you've said this many times. The V shape recovery, right? If you look at an economic graph, it cascades downward like a cliff, and then hopefully bounces back up and recovers. So this study, basically, let's see. The let me let me get the author of the study. Okay, it's Sergio uh, Carrera Luck and Werner, uh, just published this week. And basically, what they did was they looked at all the different cities. In the US during 1918, the major cities and they matched up when they shut down, when they implemented physical distancing and for how long and compared that to economic recovery. And the takeaway here, Nate, I think the big headline is that shutting down earlier not only saves more lives potentially, but allowed for better economic recovery and longer shutdowns when it when it's called for longer shutdowns also correlated positively with better economic recovery.
1: Yeah. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, uh, there are a few differences, obviously, between 1918, which is even deadlier, uh, that pandemic uh, than this one is. It also struck young people disproportionately compared to this virus, uh, which strikes older people disproportionately. There, there are certainly, and uh, also a few things have changed in the, in the last 102 years. But Nonetheless, I I think you got to go with the best data that you have. And I think this is definitely a a worthwhile study, but it it really makes a a lot of sense because, and losing productive workers, the fear from a pandemic, having the pandemic last longer because you didn't take the steps that you needed to, all of those are things which uh, ultimately are, are going to hurt the economy. And in that vein, I thought that a recent Gallup poll was very interesting as well nine in 10 Americans said that if physical distancing was up to them they still wouldn't feel comfortable resuming their normal activities so even in the absence of an order from the government they wouldn't feel comfortable going back to doing what they would normally do presumably a lot of that economically whether that's going to restaurants going to work when you can work from home etc and Moreover, the study found that 42% would at least want to wait until the number of new cases decreased significantly. A further 38% said, no, I'm going to wait until there's no new cases at all. And 7% are even prepared to wait until a vaccine is developed, which is, I mean, that's over a year from now, most likely. Maybe some of those people don't realize that, but uh, yeah. And you could certainly count me in that group. I'm not here because... The state of california ordered me to be here i'm here because i really don't want to get this virus right now
0: yeah and i think that all of that what you just said speaks to this issue that we've said you know is really a false dichotomy because your workers are part of your economy and the health of the workers physical and mental is part of your economy and so for me nate tell me what you think I i think you just have to take your medicine at a certain point it just depends on the way you want to take it and it seems that you know protecting lives and all of the kinds of things that we're trying to do that have that economic shock up front um, it seems that that's actually healthier when you start to come out of the thing both in terms of lives in theory and in terms of just you know the economic recovery being able to whether it's 60 days or 180 days or whatever coming back online and saying like i'm i'm no longer worried about getting this uh, potentially deadly uh, illness or having another outbreak, or we've got our infrastructure in place. We've got our ducks in a row and now we go back to work. And what tends to happen is you tend to see kind of, you know, recovery in growth in those situations back to where you were ish. Another
1: piece uh, of information supporting this comes from the university of Chicago Booth school of business. They have convened an expert panel of economists on a number of questions and this was about a week ago but i still think it's worth relating this panel of economists was asked a number of questions that relate to the economic effect of suppression measures of the virus and i don't need to go through every single one of these surveys but largely to summarize the vast majority of this panel either agreed or strongly agreed with this question or I should say this statement that abandoning severe lockdowns at a time when the likelihood of a resurgence in infections remains high will lead to total economic damage that is greater than sustaining the lockdowns to eliminate the resurgent risks. And 41% of the experts strongly agreed with that. 39% agreed. So 80% of economists saying that, hey, it's better for the economy to sustain the lockdown long enough that we have eliminated the risk of resurgence rather than reopening, quote-unquote, early.
0: Right. And have we spoke about the... the, I think it was, five, yeah, it was 538 who was talking about different values that economists put on a life. It's a very kind of weird, cold thing to discuss, but did we, have we mentioned that yet?
1: No, let's, uh, let's hear it.
0: Okay. So basically they calculate, uh, I guess, looking at a bunch of economists, they're saying that the estimate these days, it varies where you live in the world and things like that. But if you take a standard sort of like middle-class American life, that economists put a price tag on that of like 9 to $10 million. So even if you start doing these one-to-one calculations, this came up when the $2 trillion stimulus package passed, because the the reaction is, oh my goodness, that's an incredible amount of money. Uh, Isn't there some sort of huge economic trade-off here? And I think the takeaway, for me at least, is even from the economic perspective, you're talking about potentially tens of tens of trillions of dollars, if your, if your loss of life and all of these other things that come with it is very high to say nothing of the medical bill, um, you, you actually are talking about a huge amount of money before even from the economics perspective, you get into net negative. Now, classic disclaimer neither you nor I uh are economists although I did stay at a holiday inn what is it most hell six I can't I can't uh, even
1: Hol- holiday Inn express I holiday Inn express and I was oh, gonna sorry. say I can't well, even get off get that well, joke well, off you, right you're, now you're not doing a very good job of uh, physical distance.
0: <laughs> I know I know I can't That's get that case. joke off right now um but you know whatever whatever that means, I'm sure plenty of people disagree or have uh, different estimates. But for me, the takeaway is there are enough economists who just even from the economic perspective are not really slicing this as a lives versus economy thing. They go together. And there seems to be just an abundance of evidence suggesting that both are better served by measures that seem extreme and will shock the economy for now. Uh, and we'll get to the economic numbers in a second. But that are worth it in the long run. This is something we should probably talk about at a later point, but I haven't seen that many people
1: talking about this of just the economic cost of actually caring for millions of patients right. who get this disease, yeah. right? I mean whether it's I mean under our current system them going bankrupt or whether it's the government having to pay for that or hospitals absorbing some of the cost or whoever it is, someone has to pay for this and uh I don't know if you heard but Healthcare is pretty expensive in this country, so uh, I, I mean, I think just to avoid whether it's personal bankruptcies, whether it's governments paying for it, whatever it ends up being, that's a, a huge economic issue here as well.
0: And I think the sad thing is, right now, you know, how, how would you put a price tag on that? What are the costs of these things? The sad thing to me is, right now, we're just paying in lives, and the the workers on the front line are just taking the brunt of that. There's no price tag you can even attempt to attach to that and so yeah there's just there's a lot of sort of collateral damage if you will in that economic calculation no matter how you try to look at it let's turn now to what's going on worldwide here you put this in so i'll
1: cede the floor to you on the issues of potential food shortages if countries are going to start imposing trade restrictions.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that to me was right in line with, you know, thinking about long-term economic ramifications. The UN, WHO, and WTO uh, put out a statement recently about warning of food shortages if countries start to impose lots of trade restrictions. And I guess the, the warning here is inevitable that as we kind of uh, lock down and close certain borders and take these kinds of distancing measures into account, we might have countries saying, so like for instance, Vietnam. Vietnam is the third largest exporter of rice in the world and they at least temporarily have suspended their rice exports because they wanna make sure they have enough rice at home, it makes sense. So uh, this is just sort of get trying to get out in front of this idea, put it out there and say like, let's, let's be really careful As a global community, because not only is this potentially dangerous for everyone, but historically it's been really dangerous for lower income nations to handle when they can't get uh, certain goods imported that they that they rely on
1: yeah supposedly it is a temporary suspension in vietnam as they check whether they have sufficient domestic supplies but yeah hopefully this doesn't become basically like your local costco where some people are buying 97 frozen pizzas and there's none left for, for everyone else thereby creating a shortage which wouldn't exist if you weren't hoarding to begin with
0: right I, I mean it just to me speaks to how buttoned up we probably need to be globally if we want the best global outcome
1: so this is one that we're going to really have to keep monitoring very closely again because some of these countries who are ahead of us quote unquote china italy could be harbingers of what we're going to be facing and troubling news. From Henan province, which uh, contains a mere 96 million people. A small, yeah, just a hundred million folks. That's it. Uh, GS city, which has about 600,000 people now has a a curfew. Special approval is required
0: for movement outside the home. Yeah. You need a, you basically need a special permit uh, from what I understand to leave the home. You have your temperature taken when you leave. You need a face mask for the trip. Uh, They've shut down all essential businesses, except uh, so all non-essential businesses, except, you know, food, medical utilities. So it, it is looking like another possible measure to prevent further outbreak.
1: Yeah. And part of why I'm so concerned about this, I was like, well, okay, what's, what's going on here that they felt like they needed to do this officially. And again, we, uh, we say that with a measure of skepticism, but you work with the data you have. Yep. It, it only has about a dozen confirmed infected patients as of Wednesday. There's a, a report that one doctor uh, who had worked in Wuhan had tested negative or hadn't tested negative, but he'd, he'd gone through a 14 day quarantine, but then he ended up infecting two colleagues. And so if there are only 12 cases in theory and they feel like they need to lock it down again like this, that's, that's worrisome. If that's, if that's really uh, an the Chinese have the most experience right now of anybody, and maybe this is just more prophylactic than you need to. Maybe this is just an abundance of caution, wh- whatever. But if twelve cases means you have to go back on lockdown again, if that's really true, that's uh, very sobering.
0: I think I think we've seen enough from you know inconsistencies or question marks about the official numbers there that i would probably if i were a betting man i would say there's more than 12 cases and that the you know the signal here is the the uh the smokestack coming from the lockdown versus the 12 cases but yes it yeah. is i think it's i think it's concerning either way because of the idea of very quick bounce back
1: well it's also just the, the limitations of what a case is when you at first it was asymptomatic cases uh, Don't count here. You know, we have this official cases that are diagnosed, but we're not testing enough. And for symptoms to appear, usually you're at least five to seven days, if not more into already having had the virus, you're spreading the virus around. And so the idea of cases, a lot of times that can be a week two weeks behind, considering testing limitations, what the actual spread is. And so maybe the if it is only 12 cases, maybe the thought is like, well, hey, that's uh, the tip of a huge iceberg here. Uh, that's either people are going to present with these symptoms or have already gotten infected. So uh, it's, again, we get back to like, as I've been saying, why this <laughs> virus is such a motherfucker is the idea of cases and People presenting to the health authorities is just, it's so retarded compared to what the actual spread of the virus is.
0: And this seems to be what's happening in Guayaquil, Ecuador. I hope I'm nailing my Spanish pronunciation there, but they are having sort of a similarly, if not more concerning, outbreak around the number of cases versus what's reported. So, in the entire country of Ecuador, as of when we're recording this, there are 93 official deaths due to coronavirus. But um, per images and videos that are going around on Twitter, online, and a, an LA Times story today talking about this issue, their morgues are full in just this one uh, port city of Guayaquil. Um, they have, let me quote from the article municipal officials there have said they have recovered at least 400 bodies in recent days. And um, because the morgue is full, no one's no one's taking away the people are literally carrying bodies out of their house, just very dark, grim scene um, there where people are putting bodies in the street. And so we know, Nate, there's a lag all over the world in most most countries between the number of cases you see and what's actually out there in the wild. But, um, you know, then there's also the fact that sometimes you can just for, you know, lose your lose your measurements um, and you can't even keep up your demand of of incidences can't even keep up with measurement. And so you fall way, way, way behind what's out in the wild.
1: Yeah, not only in cases, but even in deaths. And then you throw in as well, uh, the number of people who may be dying because there isn't access to medical care in the normal fashion uh, due to other causes. India continues to be in the news quite a bit as well. Uh, The the quick lockdown of 1.3 billion people was welcomed uh, praised by the who um they also the who praised india for announcing free food rations for 800 million disadvantaged people cash transfers to 204 million poor women and free cooking gas for 80 million households for the next three months but the toll of the lockdown there uh, given the demographics of that country is really starting to hit
0: yeah and i've said it before i'm um very concerned about the demographics and the size and everything. And we're already seeing sort of the first very concerning um, warning sign or or case to pop up is from Mumbai, obviously an enormous city. And in Mumbai, there is uh, like a a settlement called uh, Taravi, which uh, per NDTV in India, has now turned into a quote unquote, urban nightmare because they've already had one death from coronavirus there. And to uh, put into perspective how concentrated the people are, they literally cannot physical distance. So the apartment complex or the housing complex that this 56 year old man was in is connected to 300 apartments. That was completely sealed. It's con- con- connected to 90 adjoining shops. That's been completely sealed. And we're talking about 1 million people. Living in Dharavi, this this uh, settlement in what is less than two square miles.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes you'll, uh, one of us will pass on these horrifying potential statistics, and then it's like, all right, I'm just going to pause, and now you can react. I'm like, <laughs> that sucks. Uh, yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, it just like, it's, there's what the hell do you say? To I this don't stuff? know. I really don't know. I realized I've probably never even had the tone, um, in podcasting because basketball is so fun or exciting or things like that. And you just, as you're going through these stories, uh, it just, it feels worse yeah. and worse and it's just like, oh man. And, and, you know, uh, so yeah, not a good situation there. And just to me, India is just an enormous firecracker, um, to keep an eye on. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I think, I hope that people understand that as we're doing this, we're trying to relay the news dispassionately Obviously, it really hits home for us. It's just it it starts to lose its meaning if if, after every single one of these you you like have to relay an emotional response like trust us, like we get it. That's why we're doing this. Um, But sometimes we may just have to present something like that and then just move on to the next
0: story. And Um, even even with that said, I still just in encountering so many of these things recently, I'm still like, how do NPR reporters just? straight face a story about like eighteen thousand people dying in a you know in an outbreak or i I don't know how they do it because it's yeah it's a lot to take in
1: saudi arabia we haven't talked about much Uh, they are going to be instituting restrictive measures uh, iran mecca and medina residents are allowed to leave their houses only from 6 a.m till 3 p.m to buy food or medical supplies commercial activities beyond supermarkets pharmacies banking and gas stations are forbidden, according to the Saudi press agency.
0: Yep. I think that just puts into perspective sort of the the global scale here. Those, of course, are uh, incredibly uh, important holy sites. Also, a few more uh, other quick pieces of news internationally Japan which still doesn't have you know I have friends in Japan and they're texting back and forth and saying like you know we still don't have we we should have nationwide lockdown and we should have stricter measures they don't quite have those measures yet but they are issuing uh, the government announcing they are issuing two reusable cloth masks for every household in Japan they're going to send those out via the postal service so kind of interesting measures there in Japan and then uh, I think some positive pieces of global international news. Italy seems to be finally cresting down, uh, coming over the peak and coming down uh, in their data. If you look at number of cases and if you look at um, number of deaths daily and things like that, maybe finally getting out of the worst of it, depending on whether those distancing measures stay in place. And uh, Nate, Prince Charles says he's recovered.
1: That's good to hear. So Less good to hear is the situation in the U.S. now as we turn to things domestically. Thomas Puyo, who I think has been doing an awesome job, had a new piece today. He's been doing a, about one a week. And he looked at the number of regions in the U.S. that, that he referred to as Hubeis, which uh, essentially have more confirmed cases than Hubei did when it shut down. It had 444 confirmed cases, according to the Chinese data. They ended up with 70,000 cases, 3,200 deaths. And his idea, which I agreed with, is if you have a region in the US that has more cases than Hubei but hasn't yet taken the same measures or at least the American style version of a lockdown, you know we nowhere in the US has been as quite as severe as it was there. And so he notes that 33 states and and Washington DC have more cases than Hubei when it' shut down. So 33 times 70,000. That's not a good number, and it might even be more than that.
0: Yeah, this is this is my version of the I don't know what to say reaction. I mean, that's just, yeah, that's what we're trying to avoid.
1: Yeah, his estimate, which, uh, I mean, he's been pretty good as far as modeling out the exponential growth of this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I recommend you guys read his whole paper. He gets on a lot of su- subjects other than this, but uh, I shouldn't call it a paper, but an article. Um, his guess is that The number of official cases for right now might be closer to 400,000 and may even be an underestimate. What he used is extrapolating the death rate now and going back over time to see how the death rate has augured the true number of cases at a given time, again, given the fact that it takes on average, about three weeks between contraction and for someone to die. We talked about this before, but it's worth reiterating that, you know, maybe about five to seven days to show symptoms, then maybe another seven days to present at the hospital after those symptoms. It seems like when you get symptoms, that period about a week out after getting symptoms, that's the critical period where if you're going to be in trouble, it starts to manifest itself. And then, Maybe another week or so after that. Once reaching the hospital, if uh, there is going to be a negative outcome for for that to happen, um, so th- that is worrisome. Uh, on a more granule granular level here, uh, what has stuck out to you uh, here in the U.S.?
0: Well, just to extend a thought on that last point, um, this is what I was clumsily trying to communicate. Uh, a few minutes ago, when you look at something like that, when you look at a state and try to say, is it a Hubei or however he describes it, when there were 400 something cases in Hubei, uh, they basically backtracked the data and said, well, that meant they really had 12,000. They just hadn't come into the system. But then you also have to account for things like, in our case, people who aren't being tested. So, right. That's a huge deal. So that's what I was trying to say. There are different layers of things you're chasing out in the wild. And so to say, okay, I only have three or 400 cases. It doesn't seem that bad. There are other factors that compound on each other that might make it that you have 5,000 or 15,000 or 30,000 or whatever that huge number starts to be, where you go over a critical mass and stress your hospital system and all, all the stuff that you're trying to avoid.
1: Yeah. And obviously the lesson has been, if you have even a few cases manifesting in the normal sense, you should probably be locking down already at that point. And, uh, we've seen throughout the U S as I know you wanted to talk more about here that, uh, there's been some delays.
0: Yeah. North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Arkansas are the only States left that have no official statewide shelter in place order. And then there are a number of other States and he talks about it uh, in the piece that you're referencing that he wrote that only have partial measures and things like that. So Yeah,
1: that including a spectacular admission that the governor of Georgia is at Brian Kemp. Yep. Uh, He noted that he was unaware that coronavirus was contagious for people without symptoms in finally issuing the stay-at-home order.
0: Yeah, he called that in in his press conference. He called that the game changer, said he learned about it yesterday and that uh, Florida and Georgia, of course, finally issuing. I'm sorry, Nate. I don't know if you mentioned on yesterday's show already. I don't want to
1: double count. Yeah, well, I I mentioned in Florida, though, um, it does appear in Florida that there are still going to be exemptions for religious organizations. Now, many local jurisdictions in Florida have uh, been much more stringent. There's a a story out of the Tampa area about a – megachurch pastor who had services uh facing charges and i think he i don't know how many people he brought together but uh and uh if they're singing during that that probably uh <laughs> Back on singing. Not, not a great idea uh yeah. they tend to do that during religious services um but i i thought the timing from uh mr kemp was interesting because it was yesterday that the cdc located in georgia really i think said for the first time that you have all these people who are asymptomatic and could be transmitting the disease uh, as we noted on yesterday's show. So maybe that might be an example of that. A lot of people are, you know, they're not reading some of the same stuff that we are even politicians. I mean, for like you and I, this is, we basically made this like our full-time job to keep up with all this stuff. And there's just so much information out there. And so a lot of people are relying on just official guidance from things like the CDC. And so if you don't get that guidance, a lot of decision makers aren't going to make decisions until they get that.
0: Yeah. And we talked about this with the mask messaging issue. Just it is difficult to message in these times. Uh, I you know, I understand that having worked in communications and messaging design systems for a long time. But to your point, it's critical that not only are they accurate, but that they come sort of as early as possible. So decision makers and policymakers can be informed on things that, you know, at this point for us feel like they're they're basic or they've been around for a while.
1: Yeah, we talked yesterday, or I I did, about a study that was in the Washington Post talking about how mass transit riding was down about 30% nationwide as an indicator of physical distancing. New York Times had another article about New York City subway ridership today that you wanted to hit on.
0: Yeah, so similar idea there. They were saying that ridership is down 75% in Manhattan, um, which has a a slightly higher median income than a place like the Bronx, which is 55% diminished in ridership. And the reason I thought this was interesting is there are still a lot of videos circulating on social media of people who, I guess in theory... They still need to take the subway to go to work. They either are essential workers or um, have low enough income that they need to commute somehow to their job that's in a place where, again, it's not locked down or restricted. And yet they're finding a lot of other people on the platform or in the cars. New York City has suspended some lines. Um, I don't know if it's commensurate with where ridership has declined. I have no idea if it's tactical like that. But Basically, uh, I think the takeaway is most people aren't riding the subway in New York anymore. The cars are, I talked to someone in New York City right before recording this, he said last time he saw cars, it was very few people in them, especially at night, you might have one or two people in the cars. But you know, you are still in a situation here where subways are a place of transmission. And when they get packed and crowded, even though ridership is down, people are still coming together uh, and, and, you know, putting themselves and each other at risk.
1: And also from new york uh, more harrowing news six days of ventilator supplies remaining and and the people who have to be on ventilators they have to be on them for so long too that it's a major issue i mean you're talking about weeks in some cases for people to be on ventilators before they recover i think
0: yeah and i think that's the huge thing that people overlook when they get overwhelmed by ventilator calculations it's not a one-time thing You don't use the ventilator for a day and then it moves on to someone else those cases start to lag and build up inside the icu
1: last thing we wanted to talk about here is economic reports uh, in the us 6.6 million now uh, unemployed that's up from 3.3 million a week ago What's happening with the processing of unemployment claims?
0: So I think the one big thing to note for me here that uh, stands out is they are still lagging in processing these claims. So we saw 3.3 million last week, 6.6 million. Now. Boy, was that last week? That feels like about five months ago. Yeah. Um, so the the takeaway that I'm reading about is that there's still a lag Uh, not just from businesses trying to hold on or furloughing workers or things like that, but literally a lot of these are processed via a call center or something of this sort, and you can't get through because the demand is so high. So there is an expectation that those numbers are going to continue to go up. There is an expectation of some economists that estimate we'll see things like as high as 15% unemployment rate here in the month of April. So just something to consider that that there's still a lag in even things like unemployment numbers or uh, worker aid numbers, and those things are expected to continue to rise.
1: I'm really kind of surprised that it's not higher, and maybe that is because it's just a, a lagging indicator. I'm also very interested to see how many businesses You know, if we're still just straight up closed, like how many businesses are just hanging on because they're just losing money and trying to keep things open and they're expecting to get some supplementation from the government? Because it seems like only 15% of people's jobs being lost. You would think that the percentage of jobs that are reliant on being able to actually leave your home are a lot higher than that.
0: Yeah. And it's tricky to say it's 15% of jobs lost I think because it's yeah. hard, right? It's it's hard to actually know. I think you'd have to look at the number of jobs and look at a different set of data. But to your point, um, the the amount, you know, what that actually like. Let me let me throw this number out there. The uh, state of California has had about a million people already requesting work aid benefits, which comes out to about five percent of the state workforce. So that's just in the first few weeks. And I did uh, just personally, I know someone who works at, uh, a very sort of like data AI driven company, um, very small team of high level researchers. There's, there's only a handful of them. And they basically said almost right away, we need to get rid of 33% of our workforce.
1: Yeah. Cause uh, ultimately if people don't have money, it's going to affect even those services where you in theory could work from home or, or you're doing programming or services for people. Uh, it's going to catch up to everyone and, and every business eventually, even something like Google, you would think. Uh you know, for example, if you're relying on advertising and uh, as uh, you know certain of <laughs> us are. Uh and <laughs> what's that you speak of? And uh yeah, people aren't buying stuff or can't buy stuff or can't use services. Therefore, there's no point in advertising those services. And now you're not going to make any money off of ads. So, um, yeah, the, the, I mean, but the only way out of this is just to get this virus stopped as fast as possible. I mean, it's going to just be a massive amount of pain. But I, I think, you know, the, the 15% unemployment to me, that very much understates how bad things really are if it, you have to continue like this for any length of time
0: yeah agreed and, and one more thing I wanted to hit on before we get out of here uh, there the FDA authorized um, basically uh, an emergency it's an emergency authorization for an antibody test through celex and you may have seen this in the news as a two-minute pinprick test. That's not what the FDA approved in the last few days. This instead is to test for antibodies, through the vein, drawing blood through the vein, and it's performed in a certified lab. We've talked about this before. Uh, This kind of thing would be huge going forward because it's going to allow us to understand who has immunity, who's been exposed, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think there's a much larger conversation to be had in the coming days about how testing should be prioritized right now. It just seems so completely ad hoc at the moment of who gets tested who can get one where where you are some places have enough testing other places don't and i think there should be while there are these shortages i I think that a a comprehensive strategy is needed to determine who should get these just for the overall good of our our society but that's a a conversation for another time we are going to actually take a weekend here we'll be back On Sunday, don't forget that we are going to be spinning this off on Sunday into a new pod. We'll still be running it on Dunked On for a few more days, but please subscribe to that. Uh, I will be tweeting about it. We'll have all the details on that on Sunday. It is going to be called the Coronavirus Daily Podcast, the most important news on COVID-19. And we apologize for the mouthful, but the SEO, you have to have coronavirus and podcast and COVID-19 in the title And still hopefully describe what this is to people. The idea is that people can discover us and get their news who wouldn't necessarily be listening to basketball. That's why we're going to spin it off into its own feed and a lot of people discover it more easily. And hopefully you can listen to us and then go about your day and not have to obsess over reading and watching the news for six hours every day. Because that's what we're doing.
0: You don't want to do that. Trust me. (laughs) 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 I know, Nate. I think that's a sexy name. I'm just going to put it out there.
1: (laughs) All right, y'all. We'll talk to you on Sunday night. Stay safe out there. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones
0: that fly under the radar. Whether it's a 3 pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365.